Welcome to Behind the Axle. I'm Mike Klonowski. I'm joined by Dave Menjin and Chris Cook. Together, we discuss about what's going on domestically and internationally with the sport of wheelchair rugby. We like to reach out to each and every one of the athletes, the staff members, the coaches, the classifiers, and the referees out there listening. And we hope that you enjoy our show. Here's this week's episode. So here we are, folks. Uh, welcome back to Behind the Axle. This is Mike Klonowski. I'm joined by Chris Cook and Dave Menjin. Chris is going to introduce our esteemed guest, and we're glad to be back. Welcome to the new season. Let's kick off 2019-20. Tonight we welcome the one, the only, from Grand Forks, North Dakota, the inaugural Hall of Fame member, 1998, Mr. Brad Mickelson. So let's let's start back at the beginning. Um, when were you first introduced to uh, Murder Ball, and uh, how did it start? And and tell us a little bit of what you did to get the the whole thing catching on. Well, my memory thinks it's uh, 1978, maybe you know summertime. But it could have been easily 79, and I was doing wheelchair track and field events while I was going to the University of North Dakota. And 20 years old, 20, well, 21, 22 maybe. I did the track and field just because I you know, was competitive, but I didn't really enjoy it that much. But it did get me out of the house. <laughs> but uh, when, I, when we went to a track and field event in Marshall, Minnesota, called Southwest University, I believe, which down the road is where the esteemed Dale Erickson was from. We uh, went down to that track event, and behold, there were the, the guys from Winnipeg, and just there to show us how to play rugby. So we had like three or four guys from that were all quads from Grand Forks, that, and we played right out on the track. And we all decided right away. There was also a couple of guys from Minnesota there, Hanson and Hike and Dominic. That's Terry Hanson, Dave Heike, and Dominic Clemens. And I'm missing some names. I know there's a couple other people there that later joined that Minnesota team. But So that's where it started. And really, I liked that game so much at that point i'm like this is what i gotta do and so everything after that was done in order to play another game simple as that what was it that you liked the most about it how come it drew you in so quickly you're sitting here on a on a track with a bunch of guys whipping a ball around what do you think drew you in oh it seems absurd right <laughs> Out there in the prairie, Minnesota, and the wind is whipping around. But it really challenged. I mean, track was like stay in the lane, stay in the lane, you know, push, push. And field events is like make sure you got the you know right technique to when you release and speed. And but rugby just hit all the buttons, right? You have to be able to pass, catch, dribble strategize so right away it was just so challenging 
Okay, so Brad, take us a little picture. We're on a track. We're using a volleyball. You guys are in your everyday chairs, right? Of course. And there's Winnipeg guys and North Dakota guys and Minnesota, I suppose, as well. And so did you guys, did they already have a team in Winnipeg and you, you know, put your team together and played against them or it was just mix and match or what'd you do? Well, the Winnipeg team came down as a team. I don't even think they participated in any of the uh, track and field events that I remember. But they're ready to show us rugby. And, yeah, so it's at least three of us from North uh, from the North Dakota team. And, like I say, at least three or four from the Minnesota team were there doing track and field events. So, yeah, we just played. We might have actually played in our track chairs because it wasn't a whole lot different from a track chair back then. Got you down a little lower, a little more stability. So, but yeah, there we were out in the windy prairie. And what month is this? Are we looking at weather, or is it warm, or what's it like? I don't remember the weather. It probably was uh, July or August, September. So, throw us some names from Winnipeg. Was Duncan Campbell there? Duncan had already left Winnipeg by then. So Jerry Turbin was there, and he was their, like, captain and actually was uh, spearhead of murder ball in, in the Winnipeg area at the time. Paul Ju, big guy, was there. Uh, I think his name was Sarge. I never did know his last name. <laughs> of course. He biker-looking guy, biker-looking guy. So, yeah, the original players from the Manitoba, I think they called the Bisons back then, or the Buffaloes. Duncan played all those guys. Those were all original original players that played with Duncan. You've maybe seen the picture, Duncan, Duncan tipping over in a wheelie, the whole team around him like that. So how did you find other teams to play? Did you have to develop other teams, or did you try and recruit guys so you could just play against each other where you were? Well, first of all, I had to, like, make our team. And the University of North Dakota is very helpful uh, with my track and field coach, who was also, like, the manager of the wheelchair basketball program at, at UND. So he gave us some gym time, and he gave us, like, we could use the basketball equipment, you know, chairs, basically. So we knocked it around ourselves for a year or two, and then we got together with Minnesota. We got together with Winnipeg. You know, we would we would drive up there, load up the university vans, would often transport us, and we played a few games in Saskatchewan also. But yeah, it was it took a long time for it to catch up in the United States. At that time, it was already. Uh, nationwide sport in Canada. Every province had a sports wheelchair sports program, disabled sports program, and wheelchair rugby, but murder ball was part of that. So they had paid staff that took care of all their management. So, so Brad, my first introduction to USA versus Canada and 
all that that meant, the lore and the rivalry, was really in, not until 93. And you were on that team. We were on Team USA and Stoke Manville. And Gail Erickson, who you mentioned from Minnesota, was on that team as well. And the point I'm getting to is we had a little party after we had beaten Canada. And some of the Canadians, a player and an able-bodied guy, tried to come into the party. And Dale Erickson basically showed him the door and said, nope, not going to happen. You guys, you know, you didn't treat us well for years and years and years, and it's just you're not welcome here. Can you talk about a little bit about USA versus Canada back there, even at the inception, and, and what you saw going forward? I was co-captain of that team you're talking about, and it goes way back. Uh, early 80s, 83 maybe, we traveled from North Dakota across the plains to Regina, Saskatchewan. Now, that's the wild, wild west. And we uh, did really well. We took third place at that tournament and beat a couple you know, Canadian teams that weren't too happy with us, including Saskatchewan. That's the first time I played against Clayton, and Clayton is a he's a he's a legend in early rugby in Canada. Rick Riley, I think his name was. I wish Duncan was here. He knew those guys very well. So, real quick, Clayton and Rick were both track legends as well. Unfortunately, I believe Clayton passed away, but they uh, they were both still playing when I started, and they were really good. Right. Well, when we played this tournament. Clayton was just beginning, and he wasn't a big factor. But my point is, after we took third place, we were pretty proud of ourselves. We thought that was a pretty big deal. Uh, or, you know, where else had we ever won a medal? But instead of having any type of award ceremony or recognition to us, uh, one of the Saskatchewan players tossed our medals across the gym floor in a paper bag. <laughs> it slid to a stop in front of us from, you know, like half court away. And that was like, adios. Nice to, nice to see you guys. Here's your medals. Hit the door. That, that was my, that's the beginnings of my, you know, what do you call it, uh, rivalry with Canada. Now, back in 89, the USA sent a team called the All-Stars. I believe it was Montreal or Toronto. Probably was Ontario. Anyway, there, Riley, really, Rick, and uh, Clayton were really hot shots by then. They were doing marathons. They were extremely good athletes. In Canada, I had a lot of knowledge, and they were kicking our ass, like, in the first year. In the second year, we came back, and that's when Dale Erickson got spun in the corner and landed on his shoulder, and it was bleeding like crazy, and tore his uniform. And we came back and won that game, <laughs> because Dale was so angry. And that started that rivalry that continued <laughs> where you remember, Chris. Oh, I remember it well. Yeah. So when I first started, you know, playing internationally, 
Saskatchewan's international team, or maybe it was their club team. I'm not sure. But anyway, they they had won. They hadn't lost a game in eight years. They won every game for eight years, and we we had them down by one. This is Quadzilla. We had them down by one with 40 seconds to go, and someone shall remain nameless threw the ball away, and we ended up going to overtime and losing. And anyway, I just remember they were they were yipping and yapping after the game and telling us this and that. And that was my first sort of indoctrination. And like, this is a rivalry. And, and these guys are serious, and, and they're pretty full of it. And then, of course, I told you what happened in 93. But, yeah, they were really good. And maybe they didn't have as many athletes in the United States, but they loved to rub our noses in it. Why well, everybody was really competitive, you know, and big egos, just like now, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know, the whole murder ball movement was essentially based on USA-Canada rivalry. The fact that Joe went to Canada after USA, and I, I don't really think it exists as much as it used to, but it was certainly prevalent for at least a couple decades. There, there's not the animosity that there used to be, but competitive between the United States and Canada, it's like any time anyone could win. It's been like that since the beginning. So we held the higher ground for a while, and then they came back with Zach, and they, you know, won some. So what's great about that rivalry is it's it still exists. I think it's a little more healthy now than it was back then. Yeah. Hey Dave, do you know if uh, Zach is coming back this year for uh, for Parapans? He's on the roster. Which is crazy, because he's been off for like two years, right? Right, but he's been training. He's been playing. He went to Japan. Um, was he working with the Japanese or, team? No, no. Canada went to Japan and played some friendlies, and they won. But I don't know what the Japanese lineups were. Yeah, right. you never know. Well, Kevin Orr coached both those teams. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's going to be interesting yeah, to see how... Play. Parapans play out like with US and are there two spots that go straight to Tokyo or no, only one? Not. So no pressure here, but Zach is back and those are there the two big dogs. Scapegoat, right? Whoever wins can go on to another playoff. I'm pretty sure about that, but I'm not an expert anymore. Right. The way we were getting we had two is when somebody won worlds, they get an automatic ticket. Yeah. And then there was still one America's zone seat. So a lot of times you would see somebody win worlds and then somebody else get the second one at, at pair bands or at zonals as we called them back then. Right. Yeah. Hey Brad, can you talk a little bit about how the IWRF all came about and what were the stepping stones from way back when until just, you know, international fever in terms of rugby teams and countries involved? The IWRF, I believe, was, yeah, it was uh, ratified in 93. Hmm. And all the teams that were there, I believe there were at least seven, came together and we had a big meeting there at Stoke Manville and uh, hashed out some details and decided to start the IWRF. After that, Paul Zibanowski, who was elected president then, 
he did a lot of paperwork and he did a lot of things that got us recognition within the Paralympic Committee. So by 96, we're already in. That's remarkable for a wheelchair sport, especially for a wheelchair sport that doesn't have an able-bodied anomaly. Right. The right word? So it was a very ground, uh, what do we you call it, a, gra a ground floor or a grassroots movement. Canada, of course, had a lot of professional background with being you know, part of uh, Canadian sports. But really, in the United States, we were all there as individuals because uh, the only sport organization we were under was uh, National Wheelchair Athletic Association, who really didn't even try to speak for us. So, so just a big meeting and a lot of ground, a lot of players that were coaches, organizers, committed to putting that together. So and how long until you, until the USQRA came about? Was it shortly well, after that? It started playing in 78 that, or 79. That first game in, in uh, Marshall, Minnesota. It took us till 88 for us to have enough teams in the country that we, we uh, hosted the nationals and and ratify the Constitution. USQRA then, it took, what, another four or five years, five years to get the IWRF back in the late 80s also. And sweet. Hey Brad, wasn't there a Stoke Manville event in Aylesbury, England in 90 or 89? And that was like the first sort of big picture event for wheelchair rugby internationally in Europe? Yes, 90 was the first year. I think they had an exhibition before that, but the United States wasn't involved in it that I know of. And I think if we would have been, I would have known. So in 90, I believe that Australia was there, Sweden was there, Great Britain, Canada, United States. And that got a lot of attention. Some of us, like Terry Hansen, myself, we were going to track and field events and we would recruit all the guys on the track, mainly, right? So you need to try this new game. And that's how we got a lot of the new players that were athletes and they went back and formed teams like in Dallas and Boston and Tampa and Southern California. All those teams came out of track athletes. I can speak for the Bay Area. It was two track athletes, track and field, that brought two teams to Northern California. That was Rick Mason and Bonnie Lukowitz. And I'll just say for myself, it changed my life, and I'm grateful for it every day. Yeah, back then, track and field was the only way we were able to network and spending hours on the telephone. <laughs> so, Brad, you've seen the game now. You may not be a participant like you used to be, but I know you're in Denver and the Harlequins are a great team near the top. What do you think of our game now? First of all, let me say that I'm a little bit jealous I never had a chair like these guys are using now. I have, an, I have one now. I, I actually got a sponsor to buy me a, a modern rugby chair. But yeah. The equipment is remarkable, and the dedication of the players is remarkable. 
to train and to, to work so hard and sacrifice so much. Back when we started, it was, you know, you didn't have any type of uh, professional training. Most of us, you know, I'm 22 years old and trying to coach a sport that just got invented. Now, uh, I think the game is a much better game. Much more challenging, especially from a physical standpoint. It's remarkable. These guys are so good compared to the focus and the, and the physical abilities we had back in those old wheelchairs. You know, to piggyback on that, when we were trying to get to the highest level, you know, both you and I can attest to this, all you had to do was do well on your team and get to the highest level, et cetera, et cetera, and get the invite to the tryout for Team USA. It wasn't like there were six different tryouts or whatever, camps, et cetera, et cetera. You basically, if you made it on that one tryout, you were in. And now it's a lot of work. Now they have to give up so many weekends or weeks or two weeks. And yeah, it's, it's, well, stakes are a lot higher too, I suppose. So as far, as far as the game goes, I mean, I think it's disrupting a bit with the level of ability that's been allowed into the game. But I think the future of wheelchair rugby is going to be split into a couple at least or maybe three sections. That's going to be a challenge in the future. What do you mean three sections? Well, there's a lot of paras and uh, all kinds of other amputees and disabilities that really want to play. You look at the Invictus games. Those guys are in it. And then you've got, you know, I just watched the uh, European Championships. Those guys are so able. And unless you, and the, of course, everyone's running high lows now, you know, threes and low pointers. And I don't see that going away for a while. And, and they're even playing a game that's not even our rugby. It's another, it's the original form of rugby in a wheelchair. They're calling themselves wheelchair rugby also. So we're going to have to do some kind of balancing act to, uh, you know, accommodate all that. Is it good or bad for the game, Brad? It's been very good for the game as far as recognition and spectators and just the wow factor. Absolutely. It used to be, well, I'll use this reference. In high school, I was a wrestler. And nobody come to watch wrestling matches. And when they did, they didn't know what was going on with the wrestling match. But wrestlers could see what guys were doing and, wow, that's a great move and stuff like that. It's the same to me for watching rugby players. I see a class two or a class one, whatever class, do amazing things that to a to a bystander that's just watching it doesn't know the disabilities would go, eh, you know, he caught it, so what? So you might remember this, Brad, back in perhaps the early 90s, there was a contingent of people um, that were trying to make it spinal cord only. And do you remember all of this? It never got really much steam going. Yeah, it didn't. But I, I just remember thinking at the time, 
I had only been playing a couple of years, and I thought, that's not fair. And then if you really think about it, you know, Polio and Guillain-Barre and whatever else were our, quote, freaks then, uh, they were changing the game then, and, of course, now it's amps and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, the bottom line is I think the game needs to continue to evolve, and I agree with you with regard to the wow factor. Um, if we want our game to truly get the kind of spectatorship that we'd like to see, I think it's necessary that we are in Yeah, but there has to be some point where you can, uh, maybe that point will come along on its own, but it seems the envelope keeps getting pushed right. more and more ability. That's easy for me to say, though. I'm on the sideline. I'm not in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, watching like the European Championships last week, it's like, I saw point five make the most amazing play and tie a game with two seconds left. That's because he was a two. <laughs> it was a pass from a two five to a point five, and then they scored. So nice, go low pointers. It's great for the low pointers, but right now I'm sure the twos are a little upset. Hey, you don't see much of the uh, four midline anymore. No, it's real. They, they really struggle when they get those. Guys, three five comes smashing in there, especially when three of the midpointers can't hold that guy. <laughs> right, the Rileys and the Phipps and the Zacks and those guys. Uh, yeah, they're they're tough to stop because they don't have to get the ball out of their lap. How are you going to turn it over if you never have to take the ball out of your lap? Uh, they can hit you without hitting without pushing their wheels. They can use their trunk to like disrupt your balance and. Change direction. Change direction, exactly. Lift themselves out of picks. And so I would actually hope that someday that level of player gets moved up and there may be a lower, you know, they'll be a lower point system in a, in a more expanded sport, you know what I mean? Where how, about, how about just moving that player of four and continue to have eight points on the court? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, Chris. There has to be two different leagues. I see. Where a 3-5 of today might be similar to a 1 or 0.5 in this lineup, and you might have, you know, uh, single-foot single amputees playing at the higher level. You better play on a football field then, because on a basketball court, yeah. they'll kill each other. <laughs> I don't know. Chairs really take a lot of the injury factor out, I think. That's true. That's kind of like football, where the hits have gotten bigger as you get more equipment to protect you. Yeah. But when you get a hit that really is is solid, you can get really hurt because you feel like that's protecting you and that you're invincible. And I know in my chair, I feel like I can take any hit. But you see some, some low pointers get blown up and yeah. just destroyed, and they hit their heads on the floor or the front of the picker and i saw the first charging call i've seen in a long time uh, in poland uh, yeah the referee showed it to me was that when rocky took and made a nice play and then his teammate came in and finished it off uh, i i it was a low pointer it took like a give and go and somebody came from the opposite side of the court and lined him up and just came at it all the way across and and 
blew the player up. Was that against the Dutch, though? I think that's who it was. It was. Uh, it might have been their uh, their Walker that that he's uh, he's been playing for the Dutch for the last few years. We've seen him when we play in Amsterdam. Super nice guy, but I thought I thought it was a ridiculous hit. Like, I mean, the guy is like completely unprotected, and he just blew him up for no reason. Was he trying to catch the ball? No, I think the ball was past no. him already. Wow. Like, the ball had already moved up court. It was just like it was like after the play. Like the ball was like probably five meters further down and the guy with the ball had actually turned away from the goal when he uh when this guy was lit up. I don't remember if it was the same thing. Yeah. Either way. Oh well, get up and take it. <laughs> So going back to like having uh, having variants of the sport. So what happens when the variant of the sport is more popular than the original sport? What happens when you know Paris playing the sport is like so much more exciting than watching quads play the sport? Like what happens? Uh, good question. I'll tell you what happens. You have the minor leagues and the major leagues, and we just became minor leaguers. <laughs> Well, I don't think we're going to lose our spot in the Paralympics. I think that's, I would almost say, baked in because they need to fill a quota of, quote-unquote, uh, high-level injuries. So our sport, wheelchair rugby, fills that, that need that the Paralympics feel they have. So adding the higher-level sport, is going to be long time in the future, I believe, of, of Paralympics. Not to say they can't start their own leagues before that, and I think you're going to see some trying to. But that's in the future, and yeah, I don't know. It could be good in one way, in that more class twos, more uh, lower level injuries, C6s, 5s, 7s actually get more playing time instead of giving it up to the three fives. I'm going to, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I don't see it happening. And here's why. First of all, they've got basketball and they already have a sport and there's no other sport that's lower than quad rugby except power soccer that I know of team sport I'm talking about. So I, I would just think that we will protect our sport and we need to evolve to make it fair to whoever, but you have to have a ceiling on on what sorts of amount of function you're going to allow. And you need to, like, draw that line and draw it in dark ink. What do you think about the Invictus Games and Chris? Should they be, you know, wound down, like, not go there? I can't really comment. I didn't see them, first of all. And secondly, I don't know. I'm old school, so... I, I believe I'd like to protect our game, but I'm also a little bit on the fence about allowing function because I really think it exposes our game to the casual fan and to sponsors and so forth. Well, we do have to protect our game, but I don't see how you can tell the people who are like love rugby that are in the Invictus games, who I don't think any of them are quads. Right. You may know more than I do about that. But... You can't tell them they can't play rugby anymore. 
playing, how much rugby were they playing in the first place? It was probably their first time playing. That's about it. It's a worldwide uh, competition, right? Well, we all know that once you play, it's hard to stop playing. Exactly. That's why we're all still here, right? <laughs> once, you, once you create something, it's hard to uncreate it. Right. So we're getting way off the topic of the old days. <laughs> we went right into the future, man. Fun. It's fun to, you know, talk about this stuff. So what about... Uh... What about the evolution of the the rugby chair? You talked about that there's such a difference from when you guys started to what you have now. Like, who are the main innovators behind those changes with chairs? And, you know, what what really drove the innovation? Again, it was very grassroots driven. And most of it came here in the United States. That's my opinion, maybe. Canadians might disagree, but um, they, you have to give credit to the chair manufacturers, Top End, who got into it early, and Eagle, and then you know the guys who came along later, uh, Mount Rose and, and uh, Vesco. You have to give them credit because they kept improving, but they were improving things as requested by players. And they would come up with something, we'd hash it out, oh, that's too much an advantage, or that's okay. And so it was just an evolution. And we actually had a lot of turmoil in the first years of competitions because there was so much innovation going on. Now I think it's pretty settled in, and people are pretty content to run what they're doing. Uh, chairs have seemed to balanced out, and there's not much problem with bad equipment or unsafe equipment or advantageous equipment. I can tell you this, that you might remember, um, I truly believe that the raised spoke guard and the picker were invented in my living room between Nils Jorgensen, Alan Seals, and myself. They were trying not to get picked, and I was trying to pick them. We kept trying stuff. The first thing Al brought out was a garbage can lid, and he zip tied it to his he zip tied it to his spokes. But there was a little tiny gap in there, and the little protector that I had for my feet, the front of my chair, could get in there. And so then he had to try something different, and we went back and forth. This was like 1991, and it wasn't long after that the top end, like you said, uh, and even Sharp Shadow, they uh, with Quickie they. They were making the stuff that we asked them to make. And uh, I know Eagle was right there, too. Barry Ewing was right behind all of that. But the bottom line is it evolved quickly in the early 90s, and it was totally grassroots. I agree. I mean, the, the chair is just – you'd almost need a new chair every year or two because it's not so much because it was breaking down. It was because the changes – made the newer chairs so much better just in how they functioned. Yeah, especially between the low pointers and the high pointers. Bumpers went up, bumpers went down, wings went up, wings went down. Yeah, but really the first custom chairs, it, they really changed everything. I mean, we were still doing all this with our everyday chairs. Then the custom chairs came along in about 93, 92, late 92. Anyway, 
that that was that was a total game changer. And if you didn't have a custom chair after that, you were pretty much toast. I think the chairs, yeah, made a big difference. It was more towards the mid nineties though, I think. Well, and you're right about stability now. Like the most recent chair changes we've seen in the past few years are seating. Uh, the ball holder rules that are coming down this year and the elimination of the single rear caster. But otherwise, they're, not much has changed. It's been pretty set for like five, ten years now, hasn't it? Seems like it, yeah. So this year at our AGM, a rule was passed with the intent of allowing a player who either it isn't happy where he is or can't have an opportunity where he plays. Either he's, let's say a guy is a younger player, has played for a few years, is never going to get any play time on a D1 team. Or he's in the opposite situation. He's, he's a guy who has D1 chances. He has a chance to be Team USA, but he's playing in D2 or D3. So the new rule is that if you've played somewhere for three years, your coach can release you, allow you to transfer to another team. So you can go and play pretty much wherever you want if you've played for three years. Now, like yeah. I said, you, what's, what's the three-year um, clause? Well, that you know, the, if the, the the idea was to give players an opportunity who weren't going to get to play where they are. Right. I'm just trying to get to why you chose that after three years that they're eligible to make this uh, transfer. That was the proposal that was put forth. I think it was uh, it gave a player an opportunity to try it with their team, and um, it it. If they weren't going to continue to play the sport, this is a way, at least I think the thought was, to give them an opportunity to stay in the sport. Right? If you only have one team, you know, your perfect example is Denver, right? Yeah. There are no other opportunities. Yeah, we've had our share of those cases. Sure. So what we're seeing as, as the transfers are starting to happen now, right? We're coming into registration season. We're seeing all sorts of players moving all over the league. Yeah, this is going to open open the door, so to speak. You know, Dave, this problem goes back to almost the third year of USQA starting, where teams, you know, tried to come. You know, it started, I think, with Southern California, and they're bringing uh, Sharp Shadow was the first to do it in basically luring players from some of the smaller programs around them in Southern California and creating, uh, you know, the powerhouse that became Sharp. So this problem's not new, and we've tried all kinds of different ways, and no matter what we've tried, you got people who will follow the rules and you got people who will bend them. And I mean, this is great. I can see, I know one player you're talking about who is never going to be able to play where he's playing at now. 
just because it's too deep and he's not he's not going to fit in. And it gives him an opportunity to go somewhere else and be part of a program. But, you know, somebody has to make those decisions, you, you probably, and as long as everything's up and up, I don't think people have a problem with it, but I think people are getting kind of tired of the, the people who bend the rules and take advantage of them. They're very difficult to enforce, the residence rules. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have the the finances to go and sit outside some guy's house or hire a private investigator. Exactly. Or, you know, um, we, it, you know, now it's there's documentation that you have to provide, et cetera. But if you provide the documentation, there's an assumption that that's enough to prove that you've done what you've said you've done. So, and honestly, we've only ever had that I'm aware of one residence protest, um, a hotly contested one. Um, and that, we, we have this situation, like I said, way back in the early nineties, it's still, nobody really protests it. Yeah. But they don't like it. But the problem I saw from the beginning is that wheelchair basketball really got ripped up by that type of rule where anybody could go anywhere and play. And it turned out there were maybe eight top teams in the United States and, you know, already down almost four, you know, these teams were all fly-in players. And the local programs all suffered, and a lot of small teams had to collapse because their talent was all moving away. And they weren't even moving away. They were just flying away to play a tournament and coming back. And so we didn't want that to happen to rugby. And I think there's something to be said for you know, working it out with your teammates and you know, developing more program where you're at instead of just hopping a plane and going to go play for the big team down the road that is offering you the spot. So it's, yeah, you guys have a fine line to dance there. But. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, the rule isn't, isn't specified. I mean, anybody can take advantage of it if they've been playing someplace for three years. So um, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But I, I you know, my, my job really is just to enforce the rule. Right, equally across everyone, whether you're a great player or a new player or someplace in between. Well, so, let me get it straight, Dave. Um, if you've been playing somewhere for three years, you can transfer for any reason you really want. Right. There's no speculation, or no, there's no specification as to what the reason has to be. If I do my correct with that mike i don't remember there being yeah a... there's as long as you've been there for three years you can do it and your coach just needs to approve it and i don't know if there's any coach out there that wouldn't approve that sort of thing because i've heard one already uh who is gonna probably say no okay but yeah it's, it's gonna be interesting i mean and this is is just like you talked about and there, it's it's opening things up and people are moving all over the place. Because um, with this new rule, they don't even have to move there anymore, right? They can just fly in and play. Right. Well, there's what, no limitations. The, right? of the past was that they, you know, we were pushing 52 teams in the United States at one point, and it was growing so much. And these guys who were, you know, playing for Kansas City, of course they wanted to go down and play for Dallas. 
you know, everybody wants to be on a winning team, but if you take one player out of Kansas City, the whole team folds up. And we really tried to put a, as much of a stop to that as possible. But on the other hand, you dance in a fine line. Some players who are invaluable to the to the national team can't be left out in the, the hills playing by themselves in a in a team that never gets to travel. So we kind of looked the other way when some top-notch players needed somewhere to play in order to help the national team. Right. And, and you know, we, that's that's important. We need to support Team USA, as, and, but we support. also have to make sure our league is strong. So it, it's yeah. going to be an interesting juggling act. You're dancing on a fine line, but if the league breaks down, you only end up with you know 15, 20 teams in the country. You lose a lot of revenue that way too, right? Yeah, and we we lose more than just revenue. We lose our foothold, right? Right. You lose a lot. Quads and all these smaller areas are won't have an option anymore. So we'll see how it's going to play out. And I don't think I answered your question very well. No, I, I I feel like you did. I mean, nobody knows for sure what's going to happen, right? Um, we're all just speculating. Yeah, you don't know for sure that it's going to decrease your number of teams, and you and you know you're hoping for the best. But. Mike, you're a coach. Yeah. Do you have anybody coming to your team or leaving your team? Um. Don't have anyone leaving. Trying really hard to get people to come, though. Like I would love to have just one more piece that would elevate our team back to being competitive at the national level in D two. Um, I think we're that one piece away, and so going fishing around the league and seeing what we can pull up with someone who's who's interested in in doing that, but. Like, it would be hugely detrimental if we lost any of our players this year. So, uh, really, really trying to suck people in and entice them. And it's it's interesting, because normally I, I don't have to do that. I don't have to recruit like that. And, you know, every time I hear a rumor about someone who's looking to move, I'm going to jump on that. So... It's it's changed things a little bit. Um, hopefully, hopefully we'll find a piece that that elevates us and and helps our team out. Uh, we're one of those teams that really is uh, a fine line team. Uh, you know, one piece away from being great, one piece away from uh, being back in D three, figuring things out again. Get close yeah. to the end here. Sorry. Do you have? Do you have anything that you would like to, either a piece of wisdom or something you would like to put out there for um, current players and newer players um, as far as the sport or the league, words of wisdom or words of warning or anything like that? You're asking me for words of wisdom? (laughs) Say the smartest thing you know. I've I've been to a clinic where you were uh, one of the key people, so I know you have plenty of wisdom to impart. Well, my wisdom would be determined. I would say my it's not my wisdom; it, it is my 
My strength is determination. If you want a team like Michael, you say you're one piece away. If you keep after it, you'll get that piece. The whole philosophy, build it and they will come. <laughs> it's true. And you just keep being determined and, and work yourself in the direction you want to go. That's my, and, and you, I see it all the time. Players who I have written off as, well, he'll never be, you know, he'll never have the ability to compete in, in this situation or things like that. Or, you know, geez, he's just all fumbles. And those guys stick at it, and pretty soon it's like, wow, look at that guy go. So that's my, my, my uh, advice is just keep at it. I think that's good advice. I'll take it. Well, Brad, yeah. thank you so much for hanging around and talking with us and uh, breaking up your evening. Just uh, spend time and tell us really cool stories and give people who are listening some insight into the beginning of our sport, some things that they probably have never, ever heard of. And I know I haven't heard some of these stories and, it's been exciting for me, so I hope it's been great for them too. But uh, we really appreciate you two helping decades, us out. Three decades of history that nobody knows about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've been playing for over 40 years, or about 40. And I still play, by the way. I, I love it. And so, yeah, I really appreciate you guys doing this to shed a little light on the history. And I'd be happy to do it some more, and I would love to uh, chat with Duncan if we ever get that arranged. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely have you back. Thanks, Brad. Awesome, man. Thanks. Thank you, guys.